This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. This is Climate One from the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're marking the 25th anniversary of the Goldman Environmental Prize, the most prominent award of its kind in the United States and perhaps the world. Each year, grassroots activists from six inhabited continental regions receive an award of $150,000 for courageously confronting powerful interests to protect our natural heritage. In the past 25 years, Goldman Prize winners have gone on to win a Nobel Peace Prize, taken up prominent positions in government, and continued their tireless advocacy. One prize winner in Nigeria was executed shortly after he received the honor. Over the next hour, we'll look back at the award as a window into the last 25 years of environmentalism. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us two members of the Goldman family and two award winners. Later in the hour, we'll be joined by Maria Gano, an advocate in West Virginia, working to clean up the coal industry. We also will hear from Kim Wasserman, an activist who helped shut down a coal-fired power plant in Chicago. First, the Goldman family, which I should note has a long history of financially supporting the Commonwealth Club. John Goldman is president of the Goldman Environmental Foundation. His brother, Doug, is vice president of the Goldman Environmental Foundation. Please welcome them to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. Thank you both for coming. Uh, so, John Goldman, tell us the context, the late 1980s, your parents uh, creating the Goldman Environmental Prize. What was that time like, and what was the inspiration for founding the award? Well, first, Greg, thank you so much for inviting us uh, to the Commonwealth Club and Climate One. We deeply appreciate this opportunity to kick off our 25th anniversary. Uh, our parents were lovers of nature from the very beginning. We often joked that my mom uh, was a recycler before the term was ever coined. She was far ahead of her time. And our dad loved the outdoors, uh, Yosemite, Lake Tahoe, and locally a lot of time in Golden Gate Park. But he was also fascinated by awards, especially the Nobel Prize. And there were two seminal moments that captured his attention. The first was in December of 1988, uh, the Brazilian rubber tapper Chico Mendes was assassinated while he was trying to protect the rights of the indigenous people of the Amazon. And then three months later, uh, we all remember the uh, crude oil spill of the Exxon Valdez. And, and those two events sparked his drive to think about, is there possibly anything that recognizes environmental activism? Is there anything that really raises these issues to the forefront? And so um, he sat down with our mom and our executive director at the time, Dwayne Silverstein, and said, let's look into this. And lo and behold, there was nothing that was dedicated specifically to recognize environmental activists. And that was the beginning. And your dad was a Republican, which is pretty unusual. I mean, maybe these days might be unusual, but President Nixon founded the EPA not too long before yes. that. Uh, so how did that play into it? Was that even a concern? Well, we've often said that a Republican in San Francisco is a Democrat anywhere else. <laughs> but 
you know, he was he was on the forefront, I think, of social issues, and and again because he, the world around us was so important to him, he felt that we should do something and could do something. So I don't think it was a political affiliation that dictated anything. He was very proud of what we have around us. Doug Goldman, what are some of the memorable impacts uh, of the award over these last 25 years? I would say, to start with, the most noteworthy impact is the fact that this prize has survived for 25 years and continues to, to exist, to be better known than ever. Basically, we've been able to find people often not even known in their own countries for the work that they're doing. And because of our methodology of, of getting nominations for prize winners and the whole process, the research that goes on, we find some outstanding individuals who've done incredible work, courageous work, where they live that's making a difference. So in total, uh, the work of these many people is frankly, making a big difference locally and throughout the planet. There's a lot more to be done, though. What have been some of the challenges getting their stories out into the broader mainstream media? We, we've been successful in getting the story in communities like the Bay Area, where there's a, a, a lot of affinity for what we're doing, a lot of interest. We find that the countries where the winners uh, emanate from at, at a particular time, get a lot of publicity there. But to be really blunt about it, the uh, East Coast media, uh, we have a difficult time breaking into to them, I think in part because this is a positive story. This is, this is, this is heartwarming, uh, the stories of accomplishment of the people, not necessarily what caused them to get involved, but what they have personally done and accomplished. And it may be because as human beings to survive, when you go way back thousands of years, that we had to be aware of negative things going on in our environment to survive. And maybe that's produced today that people have a greater interest in negative things than positive ones when it comes to news. Well, as journalists say, I'm a former journalist, uh, they write about the planes that crash, not the ones that land safely. So there's definitely an orientation and in, in, in news in, in that direction. Uh, but a lot of this is a, a real, the stories are real David and Goliath stories. And a lot of them, Doug Goldman, have been going up against the IMF, the World Bank. Is that still the case? Or has environmentalism shifted a little bit uh, from, from that sort of uh, one person against a big multilateral institution? Well, absolutely what you're describing uh, World Bank, International Monetary Fund, these, these were institutions that played a very big role in a lot of big projects around the world going back 10, 20, 30 years. Um, however, there, a change has occurred in those organizations, and they become much more responsible when it comes to the environment, so that now the prize winners that we're dealing with often are going up against governments, often national governments, uh, big corporations, uh, multinational corporations, it, it is this big against little situation that they get involved with. But I think we're very pleased to see that World Bank and IMF are not as prominent uh, in, in being opposed by our winners as they used to be. They've come around. Uh, John Goldman, who are some of the most memorable uh, winners? I'm asking you to pick, I know, some of your favorite children. But, but overall, uh, what are some that, that really come to the forefront? 
Well, Greg, I think there are some people that are very well recognized, uh, Wangari Matai, Ken Sarawiwa, uh, Maria Gano, and Kimberly Wasserman, who are here tonight. But in thinking about the possibility that this might come up and looking at our list of winners, I think what was a common thread is there are individuals that we might highlight that have personality, whose force of nature really made a difference, their impact was significant, and they may have had significant personal risk. And so people like uh, Jetan Anjan, who was in the Marshall Islands, um, a, a stately gentleman who died shortly after receiving the prize in 1991, he led his people from his community uh, away so that they would not be beset by radioactive fallout from our atomic bombing and testing. Dai Ching, who led the fight against the Three Gorges uh, Dam Project, um, issued a compilation of essays and was imprisoned for 10 months. Uh, the dam was built, but as Doug mentioned about the IMF and the World Bank, that was a sea change as far as making a difference in how people uh, of these large organizations and governments decided to change the way that they were looking at massive projects like this. There are a host of others that I could go through. Ursula Sladek, who brought up a, a community-based energy consortium that has led the German government by the year 2050 to set a goal of 100% renewable energy. I mean, that's one instance of somebody who stepped forward and decided to make a world of difference for this country. And then... Azam Alwash last year, who had the amazing task of trying to restore the marshlands in Iraq that were destroyed by Saddam Hussein and subsequently established the first national park in that country. These are just a few examples. There's so many other stories we could tell. They're all amazing heroes, but, but those are the kinds of people that pop out. One that caught my mind was Demetrio de Carvalho of East Timor, the world's newest country that got uh, into the constitution of that country, a right guaranteeing a healthy environment. So actually getting into the constitution, something that I think is interesting for other other countries to get it as a constitutional right. Uh, Doug Goldman, what do you see as some of the progress and some of the main milestones of the last 24 years, thinking about the stories of these people? I would say that in, in the world there's much more awareness of the environment um, we're seeing young young generation is being very aware, uh, much more than those before them. People care more about the environment. There are more people who are doing things around the world to better it. But the fact of the matter is that the threats are greater as well. And what are some of the primary threats right now, thinking about the current time or looking forward? Uh, is it water, climate change? What, what are some of the, the real overriding uh, concerns? Well, you name in my mind, the two most important things. Climate change, clearly. Uh, it's, it's a shame that politicians, especially in this country, have been fighting this issue instead of recognizing uh, the dire threat that exists for future generations here and around the globe. At the same time, water issue is, is a huge one in many different ways. There's much of the world that doesn't have safe drinking water to begin with. Uh, climate change is going to result in rising water levels throughout the planet. That's going to th threaten uh, marine wetlands as well as simply uh, communities, cities, are, are going to be in danger as a result of that. So I think there's a, 
uh, great concern that we're going to see conflicts in the future over water and water rights. So what are some of the solutions to those things? You're an environmental uh, philanthropist. What do you see as some of the solutions? Climate change is so big, it's hard to move that needle. Perhaps water, we have a drought in California. Perhaps is there more something more solvable there, more immediate in California on the drought? Well, obviously conservation is a key. We're, we are uh, great consumers in this country. Uh, it, in the environmental movement, there's been recognition of the distinction between the North and the South when talking about the globe, and that uh, Northern countries are contain much more consumers. Uh, I'm certainly guilty of that, as are many others. Um, we need to change uh, what we do. At the same time, we do need to, like our mother had done before, we have to recycle more. We have to find ways to not use as much and produce as, as much waste as we do, uh, reuse those things that, that we do use, find different ways of, of being consumers in our society. As far as the, the drought itself, and we're, we're going to be faced with, with uh, water rationing most likely. If it continues, we've been there before. We'll be there again. Uh, and, and, you know, can we tell the world to not uh, reproduce as much as, as they are? That's the elephant in the room. A lot of environmentalists don't like to talk about population. We can all drive Priuses, et cetera, but if there's 10 billion people, it puts a tremendous strain of 10 billion consumers who live like everyone in this room listening to this does. Uh, the world doesn't have enough resources for that. Absolutely correct. John Goldman, your thoughts on water, climate change, how serious it is? Are we going to rise to this challenge? It's going to take a huge effort. I think that anything that we look at as far as a solution is all long-term. We can do a lot short-term to mitigate it, but you're right. The, the fact is, that, as Doug mentioned, the population side is something that is dictating our usage in, of all commodities. And you used to run an insurance business, and so uh, I'd like your insight on, on how people, to address climate change and clean energy, there's often a current cost to forego something in the future. And yes. we're all about today and now, and we don't like current costs. Like, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll have my hamburger today and go to the gym tomorrow. Uh, that's yeah. tough to do for climate change, something that's, that seems so slow moving. Well, uh, I think we're all guilty, and unfortunately our leaders in, in particular, of kicking the can down the road. And we don't want to deal with what is here and now because a lot of times people think that the present issues are the most pressing. But there is a need to call to action. There really is to, to address this. And, and the, the difficulty and the challenges are immense. Is environmental action always bad for business? There's often this seen as this tension, well, well, it's going to hurt jobs. We can't clean up the air. It's going to hurt jobs. It's either or, environment or economy. I don't really believe that, to be quite honest. I think that there is a way to have economic benefit and, and as well as environmental stewardship. Uh, I, I think that the two can and should be combined, to be quite honest. Doug Goldman, are some environmentalists righteous to the point that they turn people off? Absolutely. <laughs> None in this room, I'm sure. I guess, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. There's a, I think historically it's a movement that tends to be negative. Uh, the struggles are great. We're dealing with people that, that some of the things they've had to overcome, few of us would choose to take on. So it's very impressive, but I think uh, when your achievements are relatively slim, when the recognition is rare, you, you can easily become 
negative, depressed over the work that you're doing. Because, after all, we all need some positive reinforcement for what we're doing. So has a tendency to do that. Uh, and, unfortunately, when people feel they're up against it, it brings out the, the worst in, in people. Uh, and that's not the way we're going to address the environmental issues of today and tomorrow. And as stewards of the most prominent environmental prize, do you think about that, that this criticism of environmentalism is being negativity, it's anti-this and stop that and don't do this, and it, it's seen as negativity sometimes. As stewards of the most important prize, do you look for that in the stories, the people you're looking for? You know, I think that the easy answer for us is the Goldman Environmental Prize. This is a very positive thing and we emphasize its positiveness. So, by example, uh, we're showing something that's instructive to the world, individuals whom everyone can be extremely proud of, their accomplishments, even amazed at times by their accomplishments, but in, in a collective way honored by what they have achieved and feel desire to be motivated by what they're doing and make a difference in that way. And that. I think it's a very positive way of looking at the environment. So, John Goldman, how about the next 25 years? What's it look like? Where is the, the award going? Uh, can you envision one day when maybe it doesn't exist? Well, ideally, it would be great if it didn't exist because then our world community, our leaders, and all the people that inhabit this globe realize that stewardship of this planet is of utmost importance and that we all take responsibility for ensuring that such issues that Kimberly and Maria and others have supported and fought for don't need to be fought for any longer. So that would be the ideal. But realistically, we don't think that's going to happen. So we're hoping that, that this anniversary is, is, while on the one hand it's a great opportunity to look backwards at all the accomplishments, it's more of a springboard for going forward. And our future is one where we hope that instead of celebrating these wonderful individuals once a year, that there can be a much stronger effort uh, to have impact year-round and on a continuous basis so that these stories and these individuals who reflect incredible compassion and commitment are known to more and more people and that the prize actually becomes much greater than just something that is well-recognized in the environmental world, but is broadly recognized as something that represents the very best in people and the best in achievement. Uh, before we go to audience questions, John Goldman, I'd like to ask you if you could envision awarding a Goldman Prize to a business entrepreneur. And I ask that because a lot of young people these days, they think of, look at environmentalism and they say, I'm thinking of Method, the cleaning products company. I'm thinking of Mosaic, the solar crowdfunding company. Some people, and there's young people in the audience nodding right now, think that they can have as much impact on the environment by starting a business rather than a nonprofit that has to beg and raise money every year. You know, we have a, a restriction that exists right now that, that those who receive this prize uh, don't receive it for their full-time occupation. This is something above and beyond what they would do or uh, their grassroots initiative or things that, that they take on themselves and don't expect to be rewarded for it or compensated for it. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that a business leader couldn't receive the award 
and I believe that some actually have in their own way that have done things that are beyond what their occupation is. So, of course, it could be anticipated that somebody would receive it. We're talking about the 25th anniversary of the Goldman Environmental Prize at the Commonwealth Club. Our guests are John Goldman, president of the Goldman Environmental Foundation, and Doug Goldman, vice president of the Goldman Environmental Foundation. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome. So um, earlier you talked about corporations and their engagement with the environmental causes. And what I've witnessed is a lot of greenwashing, which is a term that's already become popular and everybody knows it, about corporations that use it as a marketing ploy. So isn't there really a return on investment when companies can get involved in either their community or uh, on a broader scale, whatever their scope is, to either demonstrate how they're um, operating sustainably or more conservatively when it comes to the environment? Well, clearly that's a problem. Clearly, uh, when was it? About three, four years ago, it suddenly became incredibly popular. Uh, not to pick any targets. NBC has a green logo on it. Um, they have a week devoted to it. Did it make a difference? Hopefully it raised awareness. Uh, companies do usually, I would say, pretty small steps, but looking for big credit for that. I applaud the little steps, but I'd like to see them make much bigger ones, much more serious ones. I think one of the issues in it is that uh, as more corporations do serious environmental work, the demand will uh, go up. And therefore, the supply, you know, by basic economics, that the cost of this will start going down. And that's usually what the objection is uh, by corporations, that it's too expensive to be environmentally sound. So the more that we can reverse that equation by more people participating, hopefully we'll have the day where for businesses, it's not the expensive choice. They don't have to look at it in those terms. You know, look at what's happening in, in automobiles and gasoline. We're looking at a shift because of the cost of gas. And also, we're seeing electric vehicles and hybrids that are becoming more and more popular. And a lot of people want to make that choice. And others, it's starting to become a more practical economic choice. John Goldman, anything that? Uh, I'm hoping that there is going to be more of an incentive. The, the, the problem with the EPA standards is that's all from our government and our leadership. It's not from the car companies themselves. They've been put into that position. So if there were an opportunity not to simply leverage being green but actually be green, that would be a a major accomplishment. I think buildings is one area where it's being driven by tenants and customers. Yes. Commercial buildings is an area where tenants want to be in lead buildings and lead silver, platinum, et cetera. That's really a market driving that. Let's have our next question. Welcome. I was watching TV recently on ABC News. They had a report, and they were showing the incredible, horrible smog in China and how they had to go, like, on a three-hour mm-hmm. trip, the distance from New York to Boston, to actually find some air that they could see in and breathe in. And I'm just curious, do you know of any people working to combat that in China who might be winning a Goldman Prize soon? There's a gentleman named Ma Jun (laughs) who has been mapping uh, pollution for some time. Uh, A lot of his work has been on on the water side, but uh, he's expanded it to the uh, air quality as well, and, and he was just out here. I can tell from personal experience, I was in 
China in November of 2012. Mm. And, and uh, with three days in Beijing, the smog got steadily worse until the, uh, the Forbidden City was invisible from 100 yards away. You couldn't see the, the buildings at all. And the, uh, the thing that was at least comforting was when we left for Tokyo, you were rising out of this brown mass, and we landed in Tokyo, and, of course, it was crystal clear. But it shows how important it is to address the fossil fuel issue, especially in China with their consumption just going through the top. The Chinese government has made some indication of attention because the people are demanding it now more than anything else. But whether that's going to have a long-term impact with their meteoric growth is going to be hard to see. We had Orville Shell, the China watcher here recently, and he said that they will solve that problem because the stability of the regime could be at stake. He's less clear that they'll solve the climate problem, but they'll clean up the air because we did it in Pittsburgh and we know how to do it. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Hi. Thank you both for all the great work you're doing. Um, In your opinion, what's the best way to get the general public in the United States and local governments uh, moving towards renewable energy? We'd like to tackle that one. So, I think, you know, I don't know if it's going to come from the public. I think it's in some ways uh, it will come from the top down. And one of the, the major initiatives that is happening right now is something called Divest Invest, which is to take investments in fossil fuel companies and remove them from the portfolios of foundations and individuals and redirect them over time to renewable energy sources. That is going to, if it does take hold, be a dramatic shift in policy because we all know that money talks. And there's also risk, real risk to investors in holding those stocks in the future. Yes. Let's have uh, our question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi. Um, so I wanted to address um, the question related to the World Bank and the role of the World Bank. And um, I wanted to bring up the uh, recent proposal – ESCOM project in South Africa, which was to fund a very large coal-fired plant that the World Bank supported in the end, despite activism to stop it. And um, right now there's a situation in Kenya with an indigenous group called the Sengwe, who are being forcibly evicted um, from their lands, which essentially constitutes cultural genocide and there's World Bank complicity in all of that. How do we deepen the conversation about the role of the World Bank and share a little bit more knowledge and depth about what's really going on? Doug Goldman? Well, I, I, I didn't want to give the impression that they're, that they're perfect, that their environmental record today is outstanding, but there's clearly been a shift, and, and I think it, that there are people working in the World Bank, in IMF, they care much more about the environment. But it, it, it used to be that it was overwhelming how many of the individuals that we would read about in preparation for our prize jury meeting, how many individuals were taking on projects that were being funded by the World Bank or, and, or IMF. And we are not seeing it as extensive as it used to be. So I'm taking that as a positive sign that there is change. They still have, have a ways to go to produce the kind of record that environmentalists would be extremely proud of. 
I'd like to end this segment by asking each of you something I ask most guests who sit here on this stage, and that is, what are you personally doing to manage your own carbon and water footprint? John Goldman? Well, I think, first of all, that, that our mother was a great example for us, and so I, I think that we are totally dedicated to recycling as much as we can. I can't say we are carbon neutral yet, but we're trying really hard in every capacity that we can. Uh, we do support organizations that are striving. We, try, we are very conscious of what we're doing, and my wife and I have already committed to Divest Invest as a, a major step going forward and hope that others will also follow. Doug Goldman? And in addition to what John mentions, uh, it, it, it is a struggle. I won't say that necessarily everyone in my family sees this the exact same way. Um, uh, but for a long time, uh, to be very blunt, I could have driven a more expensive car and drove a Prius and now a Tesla. John does the same, in fact. Um, and, uh, in fact, very excited about it happens to be a Marvelous car. Um, <laughs> and, and in other ways, trying to, you know, be conscious as much as possible about not being just an out-of-control consumer. We have to end it there. Our thanks to John Goldman, president of the Goldman Environmental Foundation, and Douglas Goldman, vice president of the Goldman Environmental Foundation. Thank you for coming and talking to us today. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Thank you very much. Yeah. So we're joined now by two winners of the Goldman Environmental Prize. Maria Gano is an organizer for a more environmentally friendly coal industry and an opponent of mountaintop renewal. She's an organizer with the Ohio Valley Environmental Coalition in West Virginia. She's a winner from 2009. On the other side of the coal conveyor belt, Kim Wasserman is an organizer that helped shut down a coal-fired power plant on Chicago's south side. She's an organizer and director of strategy, uh, organizing and strategy with a little village environmental justice organization. She won her prize in 2013. Please welcome them to Commonwealth Club. Being with you up here, I got all tongue-tied and twisted. (laughs) Maria Gano, tell us about your land that's been in the family and how that got you into advocacy. Uh, my land was purchased in 1951 uh, by my grandfather. Uh, he passed on in 2001, and I gave him my word that I would oversee his land. Little did I know what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> and that my grandfather worked as an underground coal miner. He, he worked and earned only $18 a week for a 40-hour week when he first started working. And he managed to work and pay for this uh, 40 acres of property. And it's all been tended through the years. It's been taken care of in a way to where it takes care of our family. Uh, We have uh, fruit trees and nut trees and a lot of medicinal herbs. And the the mountains themselves takes care of us and always have. So. And there are springs uh, on this land. And how have the springs changed over time? Well, there's springs and then streams and also wells. Uh, we have wells on the land, that, um, and this is our water resource. And over time, since mountaintop removal began in the 70s, I have watched. I was born in 68, so I've watched as this happened. I've watched as they've polluted our water, uh, our surface water, our underground water, and most recently our municipal water. And so what got you into advocacy, and how did, how did you go from steward of this land and watching your streams change, and how did you get into uh, 
fighting the industry? Well, I didn't really get into fighting the industry. The industry took me on. (laughs) And I tended to my family property. That's what I done. And in doing so, I realized in 2001 that I was going to have to fight mountaintop removal in order to protect this property. And it just seemed like an astronomical task. Um, and it has been. But, yeah, it, it um, they took me on. Uh, yeah, they challenged me. Uh, and my love for my property is, is what pushes me forward. And were you threatened? I've been threatened many times, yes. And what kind of security do you have at your home? I, I live, I have 40 acres of property, and I live inside of a six, 400 feet worth of uh, chain link fence. Uh, six foot tall. I have three guard dogs that live inside of the fence that watch over me. Uh, one that goes with me most times when I go somewhere, he goes with me. Uh, and I also have security cameras on all sides of my home. Uh, but it's necessary. There's times I feel like a prisoner in my own home. Uh, but at the same time, I, I'm still there and I'm still safe. Because people threatened to burn you out. Absolutely, they did. And my children overheard these threats. And, it, and uh, my son was only uh, 17, 16, 17 years old, and he was in the last years of school when he looks at me and says, Mom, I can't go to sleep. I heard what they said at the football game. They're going to burn us out tonight. Well, I, uh, that's when we realized that we're going to have to have security in here. Uh, I had went for two weeks with no sleep uh, because I gave my son my word I would stay up at night and watch everything so that he could get the proper rest to get into school the next day. Uh, and after two weeks of that, we had to get guards to watch over my home to keep us safe. Did you ever think of giving up? No. Moving? No. Do you think they knew who they were messing with? <laughs> no. <laughs> Kim Wasserman, uh, your parents were activists and advocates. Tell us how you got into uh, the, your bat family background and how you came to advocacy? Um, both my parents um, are organizers and have always been, and we were raised going to marches and rallies and protests. And at a very young age, I decided that that was not going to be for me. Um, I had, <laughs> did not want to do that anymore. Um, but I think both living in Little Village and then having my own family um, and feeling the impacts that countless parents in our community feel um, of having children with asthma just triggered that voice in me um, to want to understand why this was happening and want to do something about it. And I think there is no greater threat than a mom who's mad, um, to be quite honest with you. Um, And it led me down a journey of uh, 16 years now of organizing in Little Village um, around environmental justice um, because I know that what I went through, I didn't want any other mom to have to go through. And so it became my life. And how did you get the coal plant shut down in the south of Chicago. I just, south of Chicago, I think of Jim Croce, I think, right? You know, uh, so how did you get that plant shut down? It took a very long time. I think that, um, as was mentioned by the Goldmans, a lot of, uh, uh, what was very helpful was in the last 10 years, kind of the greening of society, people talking about their carbon footprint, people understanding that the pollution from the coal power plant doesn't stop, um, on Western Avenue because that's where our neighborhood stops. It, goes all over the Chicagoland area. So I think people definitely started to understand that this was impacting them just like it was impacting us. And so it really took both that and I think um, the luck of having a change of administration in Chicago and actually having a mayor who understood what we were talking about and wanting to be supportive and help us get across that finish line um, to shut them down. 
So was Mayor Daley not so supportive? No. Um, you know, Chicago got a lot of acclaim for their climate action plan. And if you look at the plan, there was literally about seven sentences, seven words in the entire document that referred to the coal power plant, which is the largest single source of pollution in Chicago. Seven words so to talk about that. A little and bit so, of greenwashing in Chicago. Most definitely. <laughs> I'd like to talk about the jobs, both of the people who worked at the plant and perhaps in the mines. What happened to the workers who worked in that coal plant? Um, in our case in Chicago, actually, out of the 100 and about 75 workers from both plants, none of them came from our neighborhood. They actually all came in from the suburbs um, or other neighborhoods. And so for us, there wasn't a direct job loss affecting our community per se, but we were very much prepared for it. We reached out to the unions. We reached out to the workers really just to talk about the um, exposure that they had working in these outdated coal power plants and to want to build solidarity with them and say, look, we're not trying to get you fired because we have nothing better to do with our time, right? This is really about your health um, and economic stability. Unfortunately, they did not see the benefit of working with us, and so they went about their, what they did. And I believe it was a third retired, a third got bought out, and a third got transferred to other plants across uh, the state, um, unfortunately. And Maria Gano, your son works in the coal industry, so talk about the prospects for, I mean, if you are successful, mines will be shut down and men will lose their jobs. Including my son. And uh, just as a mother, I can't wait. (laughs) 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 To put your your son out of work? I love my son very much. And and, I also, he he is a hard worker and he's never missed a day's work. He's a a good employee. I also have two brothers that works in the coal mines. Um, And he has learned the hard way that it's very necessary to be able to stand on your own and not depend on these companies for your life. Uh, because you can't. I mean, it, it's not only environmental uh, laws or regulation that shuts these companies down. When they, when their bottom line drops, these men get laid off, period. In 1960, for instance, we had 125,000 coal miners in the state of West Virginia. Now we have less than 12,000 coal miners. And that's because of mechanization. That's not because of regulation. So... Like him, most of the workers that work on these mountaintop removal operations are not from our areas. Uh, Most of the men that mine coal that live in our communities work in underground mines. Uh, And that's the traditional room and pillar mines where they go underneath the mountain. That's where my family, the men in my family work. But wherever they live, a job loss is bad news for that, oh, that family. And so what's the prospect either for your son or for other equipment operators, mm-hmm. coal miners, mm-hmm. if coal is on the decline, and we'll get to that in a little bit, uh, where, where will the jobs be for these people? In cleaning up the mess. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's all they got to do is turn around their dozers. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly right. Exactly. And in the case of your son, he's going to school and preparing for that day when mm-hmm. you put him out of work. Yeah. Yeah. And what's he studying? Well, he's got his electrician license now. He's got he's a certified emergency medical technician. He's got a lot of uh, certifications uh, that would make him employable in other fields. And so Chicago, West Virginia, really two ends of the coal conveyor belt, very different cultures, urban America, Appalachia. Uh, yet there's something called holler to the hood where you actually, your organization, some others have kind of went to each other's 
community to understand what the other end of the coal spectrum looks like. So we'd like to, Kim, you want to tell sure. us about that? So for us, it came about through meeting um, folks at the U.S. Social Forum in Atlanta and learning about mountaintop removal and coal extraction and um, meeting folks who talked about what it was like to live in the holler, what it was like to live next door to mountaintop removal. So it made sense for us to take a trip and take young people from our community in the hood to go down to the holler and understand what does mountaintop removal look like. And I think it was a real shifting point for our campaign to be able to talk about coal, not just how it's affecting Chicago, but how the life cycle of coal or the death cycle of coal, however you want to look at it, um, is affecting all of us. And so to be able to come back to Chicago and say, do you realize that we are not only killing people here, but we are also contributing to the deaths of people in West Virginia and any place that mining happens, extraction happens. And for those young people to come to Chicago and see where their coal was coming to and to see how it was being used um, and how our community was being killed, um, for a profit, um, I think also brought that home for our young people. And so we continue to do that project every year. We continue to take young people from the holler to the hood. Um, and I think it's a great way of showing that environmental impact doesn't just happen to any singular community. It's happening across the board to low-income people. And we need to be united and be coming together to fight this because that's what helped us so much in our fight. We're going to, I'd like to get your take on that. I saw a video once where you said when someone in urban America flicks on a light switch, mm-hmm. they're blowing up coal in, in your neighborhood. Yeah. So what, did, what was your insight from the holler to the hood program, you know, meeting people from the other side? Well, I, I, it connected the links uh, for me and for many other people in our community uh, to see what mountaintop removal and coal mining was doing to people in our area, beginning with the miners. I mean, they, they live a very short life. Most of them don't live to see retirement. Uh, they live in very poor condi- or work in very poor conditions, and for us to see what was going on, it, it's sort of like watching a cancer eat away at a body. <laughs> you know, in our areas, you have mountaintop removal that is blowing up the mountains, polluting our air, destroying our water, and then lo and behold, they're carrying this coal to Kim's community and polluting her air and her water and ruining the quality of life for people there. It it, it made the connection all the way into China. A lot of our coal goes uh, overseas now. Uh, So basically, it's the coal industry is, uh, they're spreading this cancer, is I believe what we've discovered. Coal use is down in America dramatically. It used to be over 50%. Now it's somewhere in the 30s. Largely that's because of natural gas, and there's a whole fracking conversation around that. But Maria Gonneau, do you feel like you're winning in terms of uh, trying to narrow the use of coal in the United States, making progress? I, I think, yes, we're making progress. We're definitely making progress, and fracking is not progress. Uh, so <laughs> fracking has its own nightmares, uh, and, and water is our real true. We have to have water. We have to have air. If we don't have that, we die. Without electricity, we're not comfortable. <laughs> which is more important. Yeah, I, I mean, it's that simple. But we may be exporting our coal to somewhere else. We are. Yeah. yeah. Well, if, for instance, Meckel is a company, and SR are two companies. Uh, Meckel is from Russia, uh, and uh, SR is from India. They are in Appalachia. These companies are operating in Appalachia, blowing up mountains and polluting water uh, and taking every piece of the coal 
uh, back to their country. In the case of India, they're taking it to India, they're making steel out of it, and then they're selling, us, selling it back to us. Uh, so to me, it's, it's a cycle of the dog chasing its tail, if you will. <laughs> it, it just doesn't make sense. And, and, you know, human beings are being sacrificed for this. On one end of the spectrum, you have the government telling you that we have to do this for humans. And it just doesn't make sense. It, it, it basically boils down to the fact that we're sacrificing part of the people in the United States to keep everyone else comfortable. That's just unsustainable. Maria Gano is an organizer with the Ohio Valley Environmental Coalition. And our other guest today at the Commonwealth Club is Kim Wasserman, Director of Organizing and Strategy with Little Village, Little Village Environmental Justice Organization in Chicago. I'm Greg Dalton. Maria Gano, I'd like to ask you about the recent water contamination in West Virginia. Lots of headlines around uh, the country. It's affected you and, and your well. Tell us how that's affected you. The municipal water uh, in West Virginia, it's West Virginia American Water Company, uh, there was a chemical leak. Uh, the chemical was called MCHM. It's a chemical that's used to wash and prepare the coal. And there was a leak or a spill or a release, uh, <laughs> however you want to call that. There was 10,000 gallons of this chemical that was taken up by our municipal water. There was 300,000 people that lost water period. Don't use it. Don't use it. You can only use it to flush. And uh, it was an eye-opener for everyone, I believe. Um, And most importantly, it it risked the lives of 300,000 people. It was very, very poorly managed, all of it, from the time that they enacted the water ban to the time that they lifted it. Uh, it, the water ban currently is lifted, but the water is still not safe. There is still MCHM in our water. Our governor, after he proclaimed to not be a scientist, said that that the water was fine uh, and, and that we should feel comfortable using and, and consuming this water again. But yet there's still a, a, a presence of MCHM in the water, and it smells really bad. Uh, and our governor says, you should drink the water, not smell it. <laughs> and so you have a well, and you wanted to hook up to the municipal system. Are you going to now? No. No, I called and told them, actually, that to not come back on my property. I didn't want their water. And so people are getting by with bottled water? Yes. Unfortunately, I mean, and we know that's not safe water either, uh, but it's much safer than ours. And there is no safe water in the state of West Virginia. We've polluted. And keep in mind, water does not know boundaries. Where's this water stop? Kim Wasserman, what's your community doing to get ready for the climate impacts, severe weather, uh, climate readiness? You know, a lot of what we're doing is trying to be um, proactive instead of reactive. I think for us, one of the exciting things about the Goldman Prize and the acknowledgement of our work is it's able to show that we're not only really good at kicking butt, um, but we're also really good at planning. And as a community, we want to make sure that we're not only preparing, but we're doing it from a space that's culturally sensitive, that is um, local, that really talks about what are the needs of our community and doesn't look at it necessarily just from a business perspective. And so for us, it's a question of what are the impacts that are happening in Chicago? We've had one of the worst winters in Chicago. I left, you know, 20-degree weather to come to beautiful San Francisco. Um, you know, record-breaking snow. And when you have 
you know, 30 below days followed by 50 degree days two days later, the amount of flooding that happens and then it freezes again and then you have frozen water pipes. You know, so how is this impacting our community? And then how are we advocating for the infrastructure changes that we need? And for us, it makes perfect sense. We need to rebuild our economy. We need to deal with climate change. Why aren't we putting our folks back to work to fix our infrastructure? Why aren't they fixing the bridges? Why aren't we fixing our streets? Why aren't we changing the plumbing? Those are spaces where we need jobs. Those are spaces where we need that work. And so for us, it's a question of how do we line ourselves up to advocate to and be prepared for climate change, but at the same time looking for the ec- economic solutions that need to come along with that. So it sounds like you're rolling up health impacts, environmental impacts, job impacts, which is often our society is not very suited for dealing thing, with things holistically. Exactly. But tell us about the, some of the improvements in your neighborhood. Shut down this coal plant, and now there's parks and other good things happening. So along with the shutdown of the coal power plant, um, we were also able to advocate for the construction of a new 24-acre park, um, which was desperately needed. They hadn't built a new park in our neighborhood in 75 years. Um, and so we have a new park, and we also have a new bus line. Uh, we were able to advocate for uh, better public transit in our community. And so along with those improvements, we want more. We know that, you know, if it takes 15 years, we'll fight for 15 years, um, and we've done it. And so for us, it's really a question of how do we build off of that progress? Again, how do we become proactive in defining what is a sustainable community for us? I thought it was very interesting when you asked about the carbon footprint, because that's actually a term that we don't use um, in our community, because it doesn't apply to what folks are doing. Our folks are growing their own food. They're thinking about what they're consuming. They're thinking about the water and the plastic, because it makes it's natural for folks to think about these things and not think about it from a carbon footprint space. And so for us, um, a lot of the conversation on climate change, really we see it as separate from the causes of climate change. And what we want to do is bring those things together. You know, all this money is going to um, prepare for climate resiliency and climate adaptation, but why aren't we making the link to what's happening in West Virginia and how that is making us have to prepare for climate change? You know, the fact that in the United States, 300,000 people don't have access to clean water is astounding, yet we're willing to come after another country for violating the rights of some people, and we can't even protect our own people here in the, in the United States. And so for us, it's a question of how do we bridge our work, but then also how do we prepare? Maria Gano, I'd like to ask you about EPA efforts to control emissions from coal-fired power plants. That's been in the news very much with the Obama administration. Where is that now, and how is that affecting West Virginia coal? There's less coal being sold to the United States, coal-fired power plants. Most of the coal now is going out of the United States. And they've the coal-fired power plants have uh, retrofitted their plants uh, to use gas. The coal market has failed tremendously. It's now 34% of our energy comes from coal. Um, and I think that's a good thing, considering a portion of the change has been renewable energy, uh, but also gas. Uh, and the gas is not, it, it's not sustainable either. It's much like coal. Could people put windmills on those mountains of Appalachia rather than blow them up? Absolutely, they can. Uh, there's one mountain specifically, uh, Coal River Mountain. It's, uh, there's 6,600 acres of wind-viable ridgelines there that the coal companies want to blow up. And uh, the people in the communities in southern West Virginia are fighting to protect this mountain uh, because it's our only chance of having uh, renewable energy in the coal fields. And windmills might be less destructive, but they're not going to provide the local jobs that a mine would. Not not long term. Uh, during the and then too, 
mining is temporary. Mountain, it only takes approximately seven to ten years to blow up a mountain. That's not long enough to pay off a house loan. It's just barely enough time to pay off a car loan. Uh, so these are temporary jobs. Uh, they, it's not like you go into a mines and you're there for right. ten generations. Don't happen like that. Uh, you have to move along and blow up another mountain to, to sustain or move, those Or move to another state like Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> Our guests today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club are Maria Gannot with the Ohio Valley Environmental Coalition and Kim Wasserman with the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome. Um, hi. Um, my name is Josh, and at my school, um, one of our teachers got cited in a tree for climbing the tree, and um, they got a ticket for it. And so what I've noticed um, is that a lot of people are taking away um, a childhood's um, childhood, and they're pretty much destroying it. And it's kind of like taking a – it's pretty much ripping out half of our body – and we're not learning as much as we could from um, the environment. And so what would you do to get more kids to um, get into the environment and help out? Hey, first, uh, where did this person get cited for climbing a tree? Here in San Francisco. You're not responsible for San Francisco. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's a little strange to you coming from West Virginia, Chicago. But uh, how about getting kids involved? Who'd like to... I think that, that number one, the, the future belongs to you, young man. And, and uh, just like all of the younger generations in here, the future belongs to you. You make out of it what you want it to be. Um, and anyone to be cited for climbing a tree has never, whoever done the sighting has never climbed a tree. <laughs> <laughs> and I think for us, I think it's knowing that your voice, regardless of how old you are, is important. And yeah. to know that we are always, we see our young people eye to eye, whatever their age, they, they are no different. It's not an opinion, it's, it's a fact. And so for us, every young person who comes to us and says, I think we should do this, we do it. No idea is a bad idea. And everybody should be respectful of young people and hear your voice and, and hear your message um, and carry that out. Because as Maria said, you are our future, but you're also our now. Um, and the more that you can get involved um, will hopefully lead to you staying involved for the rest of your life. Let's have our next question. Well, thank you both of you for your incredibly inspiring work. Um, my question's for Maria. We got the news yesterday that Alpha Natural Resources, and this is the largest coal company that does mountaintop removal in West Virginia, they've just had a record fine imposed on them as part of a $200 million settlement for water contamination. So my question is, is this a sign that organizations like the EPA are taking a stronger stance? Is this going to have an impact on communities like Bob White? What needs to keep happening? It, it was uh, 27.5 million. Is that okay. the same one? 200 million for cleanup and 25 million fine, 27 million fine. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, it, based, I, I feel like the EPA is, uh, we've exposed the fact that the EPA is not doing their job around mountaintop removal. And I feel like that they've been embarrassed into. Uh, giving these uh, citations and finding these companies. It's very blatant. The the pollution in our area, the EPA has turned a blind eye to it for the past 15 years, and we've humiliated the EPA into admitting that there's a problem and doing something about it. And, And that all started at the community level, at grassroots. 
We've visited with the EPA every year for I know of at least 10 years. Thinking about the electoral map, perhaps. Uh, Kim Wasserman, anything to add to that? Uh, you know, I, I, I wish I could say that our experience is different with the EPA, but it's exactly the same. It's to get them to do move on our Superfund site, to get them to move on the coal power plant. We had to embarrass them. We had to show that they were basically in bed with these companies. And so for us, it's exactly the same thing. It's unfortunate because their job is to protect human health, but a lot of times it seems like we have to force their arm. Let's have our next uh, question. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for both um, sharing your experiences tonight. I know that I could probably speak for a lot of us when I say that it's invigorating to hear your message. And specifically the point that you have brought up several times about the global aspect of the power generation, coal, and how energy is used throughout the world. I was wondering if you, either of you, have gone abroad and taken your message in a cross-cultural context and worked with local uh, community organizations in China, for example, or with businesses, or if you've really tried to stoke the fire of the grassroots movement on this elsewhere. Yeah, we were very fortunate last year to participate in a caravan to Mexico with Via Campesina, which looked at how environmental impact is affecting all aspects of life. And so it was a drive through Mexico to see both rural and city life and to see rivers like in Appalachia that are white from polluting companies upriver, to see folks who are dealing with mining issues um, in central Mexico next to the Yucatan. It was amazing to know for our folks that their fight is not alone, right? It's not just folks in West Virginia, folks in Chicago, that there's folks in Mexico, that there's folks in China, that there's folks all over the world battling the same thing. And I think what was the most compelling is that our stories, being that we were so many thousand miles apart, our stories were so similar. But I think what was most amazing is that we still had governments that were ignoring the situation in Mexico, the situation in, West, in Appalachia, the situation in China, and saying, it'll be different here. We'll have rules and regulations that'll make it safe. We'll be able to do things differently here. And it's like, when do you, when do you stop that repeated cycle of the same thing and say, no, it hasn't worked there, it hasn't worked here, and it will not? work here. And so when do we start to look at different ways of doing things versus continuing the same cycle over and over again? So, no, we were very fortunate to be able to do that. Rita Cano, last word. Uh, what keeps you going? What fuels you to keep going in this fight? For most of my life, it was my children, and now it's my grandsons. You know, I, I just can't imagine it continuing to get worse. People that I care about, my grandsons, namely, uh, will be here for that. And I would like to see my grandsons live in peace. Will they stay on that land? Yeah. We have to end it there. Our thanks to Maria Gano, uh, who's an organizer with the Ohio Valley Environmental Coalition and a Goldman Environmental Prize winner from 2009, and Kim Wasserman, Director of Organizing and Strategy with the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization and a Goldman Environmental Prize winner from 2013. I'm Greg Dalton. Thanks you all for coming today to Climate One. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chen. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd and editor is Annie Chelsea. Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. <laughs>